Let's take our Bibles today and turn over to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Again, we're in our Choice for the Ages series as we close it down today, but just a few weeks ago we began our series and we noted John the Baptist and we said that John made a choice for the ages. 
his choice. He chose to be great in the sight of the Lord. Then we said last week, we talked about the fact that there was a, another man who made a choice for the ages. It was named, his name was Joseph. And of course, he was the earthly father of Jesus. And we said that Joseph had an unwavering faith in God. He had an unwavering faith in God's word, that he had an unwavering faith in God's goodness. And as a result, that faith moved him to make a choice for the ages. That choice, to obey God immediately. Obey God immediately. <clears throat> now this morning, we conclude our series by pointing to a few other fellows in the Bible. Actually, they're called the wise men. We're going to look at them just a little bit today. And so we're going to begin reading in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. <clears throat> and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts today. May you work in our lives. May you take the word of God and apply it to us in a very practical way. We thank you again for all you do for us and all you've done. Thank you, Father, for the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, came to earth, that you sent him to us. Lord, he arrived here as a, just a simple little infant, a baby. And there in that manger, we are reminded of just your love for us. And as he grew, he grew. And Father, he grew in favor with both you and man. And Father, he was perfect and sinless and he ultimately died for us on Calvary. We thank you so much for the precious, perfect sacrifice you made for us that we could be redeemed, that we could be restored. Lord, thank you so much. <clears throat> we love you now. We ask that you would just help us today in Christ's name. Amen. A lot about the Christmas story has been creatively crafted, if you will. It's not necessarily contextually founded. It's primarily, at some points, it just seems like there's a lot of glaring inconsistencies in it. One of those inconsistencies is the nativity scene itself where we find Jesus comfortably lying in a little bed of straw. Uh, even though the Bible states that he was, uh, even though the Bible states he was in a manger, which was nothing more than a, just a, a simple animal trough where they ate out of, we see him often in those manger scenes in this lovely little, I don't know, crib, if you will, almost of straw. 
Now that's not, I don't think that that's a, a grave injustice, but I do think that, again, it deviates from the scripture slightly. There was nothing glamorous about that night. Every time we look at the, you know, the, the little stories about Jesus, you know, it seems like it's just such a magnificent time. You know, angels are singing in one corner and the, the drummer boy's beating his drum and the three wise men make their way to baby Jesus and offer him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it seems like it's just such a fantastic, unbelievable night. It, it wasn't glamorous at all. It's kind of like watching a John Wayne war movie and you feel like, man, this is so glamorous, going to battle, giving our life for our country. And listen, I know that there's, uh, we've changed our attitude toward things like that, but my friend, let me tell you, it was nothing glamorous about war. Nothing glamorous. Oh, it's necessary at times to protect our freedoms and our rights. I get that. But let me tell you something. There's nothing glamorous about it, although the war movies make it look glamorous sometimes. But there's nothing glamorous about uh, a stable. There's nothing glamorous about Jesus being born in it. There's nothing glamorous about a, 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 a trough, a food, a, a food trough for animals, and there's baby Jesus. I'm sure there was uh, parents, uh, you know, you had uh, Mary, of course, and you had Joseph, his earthly father, trying to make him as comfortable as possible, I'm sure. But I think sometimes that manger scene, that nativity scene is stretched quite a bit. Another glaring inconsistency or misrepresentation involves the wise men. Even in our very passage, it's funny to hear, but the Bible says when they went in search diligently for a young child. Not a baby, a young child. And as I said earlier, in that, that, that nativity or that manger scene, we always see the three wise men, you know, they're walking, you know, come they told me, pa rum pa pum pum a newborn. But that's not how it was. And they weren't even there that night. They weren't there the day that Jesus was born. The Bible's very clear about that. I mean, first of all, there's nothing in the account, obviously, that there was even three wise men. There were three gifts, it appears, but the, I mean, he makes that clear, three things that were given to Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that there were three wise men. There may have been more, there may have been less, but we know there were three gifts. If the star appeared when Jesus was born, and it did, obviously, at least that's what we, we remember reading about the star in the scriptures, if they saw that star, which apparently they, they saw something, they said to Herod that they'd seen a star, you know. We've seen a star. Uh, it would have taken them at least, I mean, I don't know, months maybe. Weeks for sure, but it, no, no, I mean, at best, uh, weeks, uh, probably months even before they could have ever gotten there. Even if they started the very day they saw the star. I mean, they're coming from the east. Many believe they were from Babylon. Some say that they were oriental kings, you know, because that's how the song says, so it's got to be true. <laughs> also, the first stop wasn't baby Jesus. Remember, here we find them in chapter 2 going to Herod first. Well, obviously, that wasn't the first. Jesus is already born. And here that we find them going to Herod and they're, they're, they're inquiring of him, where's this baby, where's this king at? Of course, they're then following the star and they find Jesus. The Bible tells us that they came into the house. They didn't go into a stable. 
They went into a house, the Bible says. Then the Bible tells us that they presented those gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned of God not to go back to Herod, the Bible tells us that they traveled directly home another way. After those wise men then returned home, that's when Joseph was then told to flee Israel and go to Egypt. Now again, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not really as much a stickler as I probably should be sometimes, but I'm just saying, stating for the record that the wise men were not at the nativity scene. And yet probably if we do a living nativity here, one day out front in the corner, we're going to have some three wise men standing there probably. You say, but that was being consistent with the word of God, preacher. I know, but it looks really good. (laughs) Now, I want you to look at verse 2 of our passage, chapter 2, verse 2. Again, now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, watch this, saying, where is he that is born, king of the Jews? That's important, isn't it? Who are they looking for? A king. I got to believe that that really grated Herod. I mean, he's the king. You're looking for a king? You found him, buster. No, we're looking for a king, the one that's been prophesied and promised. Oh, and then he goes into survival mode. Well, go find him, and when you find him, come tell me where he's at. Huh. Yeah, we know ultimately why that happened, don't we? But we see here in verse 2 an interesting thing. He says here, where is he that is, they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him, he says. And come to worship him. These were obviously men of means. I mean, to be able to travel as far as they did. They might have had an entourage with them. And here they are now on the scene. Men of means. They likely held important positions back home or or at least were known for their wisdom. They're called wise men. They had probably studied not only scriptures, it's apparent, but they've studied so many other things. Some would say they've studied the stars and they studied the the universe and they studied uh, all kind of human learning. Absolutely, I'm sure they were. They were wise men. Listen, there's nothing wrong with learning. It's a good thing. Ignorance is not something we should be proud of unless it's ignorance of evil. But what stands out most to me is that last statement that they made. And we, he says, are come to worship him. Come to worship him. It seems to me that worshiping him wasn't as common as one would first imagine then. You know, think about that for a minute. These guys come all the way from the east to worship Jesus Christ. They make a special trip. But none, or very few, of the Israelites care to lick. 
I mean, there were all kinds of folks to include family and the Israelites and all of these people, different people that had grown up at the feet of the rabbis hearing about the promised seed and the Messiah that was yet to come, and none of them were there at the manger. None of them found their way there to that stable that night. I mean, you had, I mean, there was no rooms in the inn, mind you. So therefore, the city was a completely packed with visitors and all kinds of people from around Israel finding its way there because of that taxation. I mean, they heard what the rabbis had said. They had been taught and trained in Scripture, and yet it was the wise men. They travel all the way from the east, and they come all the way to see Jesus in a manger. They're looking for him. They want to find him. Why didn't anybody else in Bethlehem say, where's Jesus at? How's come he had to send an angel out to some shepherds and say, hey, guys, come over here. Join us. I want a witness here. Why? It doesn't seem to me that worshiping him is really that big a priority in most people's lives. I would even imagine, can you, I mean, think about this, okay? Now, I mean, Joseph, he goes back to Bethlehem, right? Well, why? Because of his heritage, his family, his, his lineage. You mean there were no family members there that night? Why, why wouldn't they have stopped by at least? You say, well, maybe they did, and it's possible they did. But for some reason, it's not recorded. You know, I think about the first mention of worship, and I think one of the reasons why very, it's, it's not so common to worship him is because of the first mention. First mention in the Bible is extremely important, mind you. It often sets the real foundational definition or gives you the basis for the word itself throughout the scriptures. I want you to, I want you to look over at Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. We're going to see here the first mention of this word worship. And it's in, it, it, it's in reference to Abraham and Isaac. Now, we know that God had told Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on an altar. <laughs> look, now, look at what goes on here, and look at how this word is used in Genesis 22, 5. Now, Abraham has taken his son now, and he's gathered up what he needs for a sacrifice. And he's gone with him and his servants and others, and they've made their way now here, and many believe we're here at Mount Moriah here. And he says, okay, let's stop right here, fellas. And he says to them here in Genesis 22, 5, he said to his young men, abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and what? Worship and come again to you. He is going to literally sacrifice his son. When Abraham says he, he and the lad are going to worship, he's obviously, it's something that's going to be a grave sacrifice. It's going to cost him something. Can I tell you one of the main reasons why very few are anxious to worship him? is because it always costs. There's always a price. It's going to require some sacrifice. If your worship of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't cost you anything, then you have not worshipped. Amen. 
You say, man, it's tough sometimes to worship God. Well, boy, you must be doing it then. Because if it's always easy, if it doesn't cost you something at least, if it doesn't inconvenience you, then maybe you're not really worshiping. The very foundation of the word, the, where the, the first mention is used, it's in reference to Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac being sacrificed by his father. And he says, we're going up there. We're going up yonder to worship. And he says, and come again to you. Now, I believe that Abraham had a lot of faith. I believe that Abraham believed that he can put a knife through his son and his son would rise and walk away. I believe he, I, I think he believed that. But I don't know about you, but let me tell you what, that's a real sacrifice nonetheless. Because God wouldn't be guaranteed, it doesn't have to do anything. You say, but God would never ask us to sacrifice our children. Ask a mom or dad whose children are on the mission field. I'm, okay, they're maybe not dead, but they are not able to be there on Christmas. They're not able to be there during the holidays. They're not able to actually be around. You say, yeah, but at least they can FaceTime. They didn't always have FaceTime. How many times has God chosen to take a young child home? And a parent that worships God is willing to allow that to happen without being bitter toward God. How many people have never been bitter at God because of a lost loved one? Especially a child. That's a tough one. I've seen it. I've watched it destroy families. Abraham was willing to worship God no matter the cost, <clears throat> no matter the price. And he recognized and understood it was going to cost something. True worship always demands an element of sacrifice. Then I want you to turn to Exodus 34, 14. We start talking about worship, and this is something that's important too. Because we're going to recognize that God is a little bit jealous about worship. He don't like to share worship with other people. He wants us to worship him exclusively. That's what it says here in Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God. Notice it's a little g God. Hey, there are plenty of little g gods in the world. They're all over the place. Matter of fact, there's a bunch of them possibly in the room today if you allow that to be the case. You say, what do you mean? Oh, well, you know, years ago there was what was called the New Age Movement. Oh, it's still around. It just sometimes gets relabeled. But they taught that, 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 that we're all, there's a God within us. And what they were really saying is that you are a God of, in and of yourself. Oh, little G gods then. Because that's not big G God, that's little G God. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's interesting. His name is Jealous. Hey, Jealous, how are you? It's amazing how many names he has. Do you know that all his names describe his character? I'm always amazed. You know, I, I was reading the other day about relationships today and how they're evolving. 
And now today, you know, this whole big open movement, you know, where couples can have multiple partners in a marriage and all of these things. Oh, it's, it's, it's the thing to do these days, right? I mean, that's what the world's telling us. I mean, your partner and you and everybody has a right to be, have pleasure, a right to have satisfaction, a right to feel complete, a right to feel... Well, how can you as a spouse expect them to be autonomous or, 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 or whatever? I think that's the word. No, autonomous might be the wrong word. I'm thinking of a different one. But, but to be, you know, uh, by just with you, I mean, come on now. I mean, their needs might be greater than you can provide, and you don't have a right to expect them to only be with you. Come on. The one person says in the article, well, you know, I was struggling. I was a little jealous there for a while, but boy, I just was so amazed when I saw how, how much it makes them happy. You know, God's name is Jealous. Ladies, I, I, listen, fellas, I, I've watched this go way overboard in the past. I have seen when men are so jealous that they, wives, their wives can't even look up in their cars. They drive down the road for fear that they might see another man and their husband is that insecure. That's ridiculous. If you're that insecure, you probably, your marriage is done already. I promise you it is be over soon. You can't continue like that. But let me tell you this. There is nothing wrong with a man saying, that's my wife. Mine, wife. And a wife to say, no, you're my husband. Hey, listen, I don't want you going to lunch all the time with somebody else of the opposite sex and hanging out and having a good time. You're mine. My name is Jealous. There's an element where there, that's, it's a proper attitude. We're created in the image of God. Guess what a man will be then? Jealous from time to time if he feels that he's not being, that his wife is stepping in a position where he feels threatened. And again, guys, you better be secure in your, your own manhood. You better be secure in who and what you are. I get all that. But listen, this stuff happens, especially the younger guys are. And ladies, I know some of you get jealous too. Can I tell you, that's a godly characteristic. Now, we have to balance that with a godly attitude of faith and love and hope. But we get all bent out of shape today. There's no reason. Your, your, your husband should not be jealous of you. Why not? That's how God is with us. I'm sorry. I'm just telling you how God is. And if God's that way and we're created in his image, I don't know about you, but it seems to me we just might be tempted to be that way too. Listen, I don't get bent out of shape. I trust my wife. But I guarantee you this. If one of you guys got the text in her all the time outside of church, my friend, you and I would be having a discussion. And let's hope it ends with a discussion. Because my name is Jealous in that sense. Now, again, I can go overboard. Her bus, a teenager on her bus route texts her. And I'm like, oh, that jerk. There's no way. I'm not putting up with that. He's a man. You don't, don't you let him text you, honey. Oh, that's ridiculous. I've seen things that are more ridiculous than that, though. But you know how we can take this overboard. Again, I don't know why I'm spending so much time on this. Somebody needs it, obviously. But don't be so jealous that you can't get along with each other and that you're always believing there's something going on when there's nothing going on either. That happens a lot more than normal than you'd think. Now, nonetheless, his name is Jealous. Man, he says, I don't want you worshiping anybody but me. 
Nobody but me. In Jeremiah 2.11, turn there, would you? We're going to get to the message. We haven't gotten there yet, I know. We're going to get there, okay? And it'll be fast. We won't take a long time with it. Is it? Okay, see, yeah, okay. Gotcha. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You say, what's, he, what's going on? Jeremiah is speaking now about the people. And he's, he's, he's relaying a message, and this is God's perspective, and this is the prophet's view, and he says, listen, my people, God's saying, have committed two evils. What two evils? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can I say that I don't believe that that is simply something of the past. I believe that we could point to those two elements and say they're, they're, they're present with us today. See, what they did was this. They had forsaken the source of satisfaction and fulfillment. And the source is none other than the Lord, him. He's the source. And say, man, my life stinks. You want to know why it stinks? And I'm, just, I'm not trying to be mean. My friend, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're out of a job. It has nothing to do with the fact that your health is jacked up. It has nothing to do with the fact that your marriage isn't what it ought to be. That's not really why you're so messed up. Can I tell you the real root problem, why there's no real joy as we talked about in Sunday school this morning? It's because of a lack of him in our life. Now listen, I'm not saying that those things don't contribute to the mess in our life, but I'm telling you this, that if our relationship with Christ and our worship is proper and it's in alignment and we're really where we belong with him, I'm going to tell you what, it's not going to be as jacked up for so long. I'll tell you, we're going to get some things right and we're going to get some things straightened out. And it doesn't matter. I'm telling you, I have talked to people in hospitals. I've talked to people on their deathbeds and they still found joy in their life. Why? Because there was something between them and him. I'm not the best at this. My goodness. Man, I stubbed my toe and I think the world just fell off its axis. Somebody cuts me off driving down the road and I'm like, what's going on? I mean, I get, go to get uh, some chicken maybe over the, 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 those chicken strips over at, uh, what's the place I like? Raising Cane's. And they hand me the littlest chicken fingers you ever saw in your life. And I look at everybody else's and I say, why me, Lord? So I'm not putting anybody down. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that in our lives sometimes, we really fail to see and recognize what's most important. Then he says, man, I'll tell you what. They hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns. They can hold no water. They had sought to find satisfaction and fulfillment on their own devising their own means by which to find that fulfillment and satisfaction other than God. And they're broken cisterns. They hold no water. They will not satisfy. 
You cannot find satisfaction and fulfillment outside of Christ Jesus. I mean, how many times does a football player or basketball player or somebody that's making all this money in movies and all of that stuff be miserable and want to end their lives and wreck their marriages and ruin their, their whole futures? And we say, what's going on? They have everything. No, they don't. Many times they're missing the most important thing, and that's him. Thou shalt worship no other god. See, the wise men made a choice for the ages. They made a choice for the ages. They made a choice that affected the future. They made a choice that today, to this very day, we still talk about them. We still go around dressing up like them. They chose to worship him. That's a choice for the ages. Just a couple very simple thoughts and we're done. Number one, the Bible says they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. I don't know about you, but when you read about worship in the Bible, what you find many times is that worship is expressed in many ways, but most importantly, you see in scripture, here's how it's, here's how it's expressed right there. You, you, you see what happened? It's expressed with someone on their knees, bowing before God. See, we like to talk about praise teams today. We're worshiping Jesus. Some of you couldn't believe I can move like that. I'm like a mumba. A man, what's that called? It's like a snake. What's that? A mumba. Yeah, whatever. Whatever Kobe Bryant was. Let me tell you something. This isn't worship. Lights flashing. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus. Hey, that's not worship, my friend. Worship's right here. This is worship. Man, people running around. Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! How many times are they on their knees? It's easy to worship God when we're doing something standing up when we're getting glory poured, poured our way, when somebody's patting us on the back, the real work of worship is done in the secret closet, in that secret place. That's where worship takes place. You say, what about the house of God? Hey, listen, there's something wrong. When we come to the house of God, it always has to be boom, bang, wham, like some kind of Batman and Robin. You know, bam, zoom, pop, woo. What's wrong with that in our churches? Well, it's just boring at my church. Maybe you're the one that's the reason it's boring. Because you just don't see what it means to worship God, possibly. And I'm saying that in general because I think most of you do. But the fact is, is that so many times I hear about people so dissatisfied. It's just the music just doesn't get to my heart. The music's just too conservative. The music did, and the music's that. If it's the music that makes you worship God, my friend, there's something wrong with you. If you have to have music to worship, there's something wrong because it's not about music. It's about a person, Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with good music. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm about sick to hear with everybody walking around with these in their ears all the time. And you say, hi, how's it going? They're like, 
I don't know what's going on. I listen to music 24-7. I listen to something all the time. I'm on a podcast continually. I don't have time for the real world or real people because I am so in tune with everybody and everything else. What is wrong with us that we can't sit in quiet? What's wrong when we can't just let God speak to us? Why do we always have to have noise and activity and things going on all the time? I can't just sit at home and do nothing. The TV's got to be on. The music's got to be playing. Somebody's got to be talking. I can't take the silence. What's wrong with us? Why? Why can't we take the silence? I don't think we're very used to silence anymore because you know what silence often leads a Christian to? Worship with him. I don't think we do as much worship as we'd like to think we do. I think you can come to church and never once worship God. I think you can sing the songs and never once praise him. I think you can listen to preaching and never once worship God. I I think you can listen to the choir and not worship God. I, I think you teach Sunday school and preach the message and not worship Worship goes far beyond our activity. It is so much more than that. They fell down and worshiped him. These were men of means. These were men of probably position. These were men that could have easily said, wait a second. We're next in line for a big promotion. We too will be a king potentially down the road. Why in the world do we bow ourselves to him? Why do we show him the respect he's going to now get? Why would we bend the knee for him? But they did. They humbled themselves. In James 4.10, the Bible says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5.6, Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You know, if you want God's best, you got to get low. F.B. Meyer once said this, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above the other. And that the taller we grew in Christian character, the easier we could reach them. I now find that the taller we grow in Christian, excuse me, I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. It's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. That we have to go down always down to get his best gifts. I made a statement years ago, and I wrote MAO beside it, Mayo. That's my initial. I want to make sure nobody else got credit for it. It's that powerful. You laugh. You hurt me when you laugh. We must get lower in order to get his highest praise. Man, if you want God's highest praises, you got to get low, and I got to get low. Man, we walk into a room and we start measuring people up. Man, he looks successful. She's so pretty. I bet, oh my goodness, I'm just nothing compared to them. Or, oh, look at them. Boy, am I glad I'm not them. What what is all that about? Why is it that we go sizing people up the moment we walk into a room when there's no reason really to do it other than to somehow 
gauge our own self-esteem. Well, I think I'm prettier than all the rest of the girls in here. Now, I didn't say that. And I hope none of you guys did either. <laughs> but you know, why do we do that? These wise men, man, they made a choice for the ages, and the choice was to worship him. But in order to really worship him, we have to humble ourselves. We got to get low. We got to get on our knees. We got to tell God, there's nobody, there's nothing that I want more than you. Number two, not only did they, they fell down and worshiped him, but number two, they brought their best to the table and not their leftovers. We don't have time to get into those gifts, but those gifts represent things, and those gifts were very valuable in their day. If we say gold and frankincense and myrrh, and somebody says, well, of course, they could afford those gifts. If I could afford them, I would give a lot more too. See, I don't think it's, it had nothing to do with their ability to give. That wasn't the issue, but instead it was their willingness to give. See, they gave the best they had. Will you? Will I? We often shortchange God. We give ourselves a number of nice things. But what do we give to the Lord? And this goes far beyond money even, although it includes it. I mean, we want to be loved. How much love do we give him? We want respected. How much do we respect him? We want to feel accepted. How do we make him feel? in our lives, in our relationships. I mean, we give a lot of good things and, and get a lot of good things for ourselves, but what about him? We should bring our best before the king. He deserves our very best. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there's no work, nor device, nor wisdom, nor knowledge in the grave, whither thou goest. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether, uh, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think about David. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. David makes a statement that's so awfully important and it's, it's so powerful and, and it, it's, it's indicting really at times, at least in my own life. Notice what he says in 2 Samuel 24, 22. 2 Samuel 24, 22. The Bible says over there, 2 Samuel 24, 22. And Aaronah said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him, Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. But these things did Aaronah as a king give unto the king. And Aaronah said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. 
And the king said unto Aaronah, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I think this is, this is life-changing if we figure this out. I mean, David said, no, I appreciate you being willing to give me all the instruments and to provide me a place and to give me the ability to build an altar. I appreciate everything and the sacrifice. That's wonderful, but it's got to cost me something or it's not truly worshiping him. I got to give my best, not someone else's best, David says. What about your best? Does he get it? What about my best? Does he really get it? Not my best when it's convenient. Not my best when I want to. Not my best when it works out in my favor. I'm talking about constantly, continually, my best. These wise men, man, they made a choice for the ages to worship him. And how in the world did they do that? They fell down and worshiped him. They brought their best to the table and not their leftovers. And finally, they left the presence of God different than when they came. You say they did? Well, Matthew chapter 2. Turn there again as we close. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. I say close, but this point lasts for about 25 minutes. No, I'm teasing, it doesn't. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. Look what he says here in Matthew 2, verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. You say, wait a second. That ain't talking about their, them changing. No, but their direction changed. And I believe that that's applicable to anybody that ultimately gets in the presence of Christ. I don't think you ever go back the way you came. You always leave another way. The wise men, again, returned another way. What person who has ever really entered the presence of Christ has left the same way as they came? Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible talks about a, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy. I just picture that. One cried unto the other, holy, holy, holy. Just went around the room. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see him, we will see ourselves in a different light. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, he says. This is the prophet of Israel. Isaiah, he's one of the major prophets. 
I don't know about you, but his walk with God was probably pretty good. Yet when he gets in God's presence, he does not leave the same. Meeting Christ will change our course and direction in life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Hey, listen, I'm not preaching against eternal life. But let me tell you something. We, if not careful, sell salvation and Christ cheap. I don't know your heart, you don't know mine. And I can't judge you whether you're saved or not. All I can take is your profession of faith. Let me tell you something. This idea that we can come to Christ and mean business with God and then walk away and not have anything in our life change at all, and I'm a little concerned about that. I am. I'm not saying people aren't getting saved possibly, but let me tell you something. It's amazing to me that we don't see anymore sometimes in people's lives. I mean, we're, we're witnessing, we're sharing gospel. Let me tell you what, we better have the Spirit of God doing the work in the life. Because if, if it's simply a prayer, nothing's going to happen. And I'll tell you this, just because someone gets saved doesn't mean their whole life turns around the next minute. Somebody's a drug addict and they're no longer a drug addict. Somebody's a drink, uh, you know, a, a, a drunk, they're, uh, somebody's a harlot, and all of a sudden their whole life changes overnight. I'm not saying that. But let me tell you something, there ought to be something that changes in a heart an attitude, an outlook. Something's got to be different, man. God moved in. They've got a glimpse of him. Something's going to change. Not just the fact that he moves in, but that moving in is going to affect them. If anything, they're going to find conviction in their life that they never knew. It's not going to be as easy to live the way they've been living. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's a newness of life. There's a different walk. It ought to affect our life. And if it's not affecting our life, we need to do two things. One, we need to ask ourselves, has he moved in? And number two, we need to ask ourselves, if he has moved in, why isn't he making a difference in my life? When you and I choose to worship him, it's going to affect some things. Our priorities. Nothing will be more important to us. It will affect our perspective. No sacrifice will be too great. And it will affect our practice. Because a relationship with him always affects everything. Our priorities, our perspective, and our practice will change. Let me tell you what. Those wise men, they made a choice for the ages to worship him. And when we make that choice, it's a choice for the ages. It'll change your life. It will change everything about you and everything about me in the eyes of the world in which we live. The wise men made a choice for the ages to worship him. What about you and what about me today? How's your worship? It begins with a relationship, a relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts at Calvary, and we humble ourselves before him first and foremost and say, Lord Jesus, you died for me and paid for my sin. You took my place, and you sacrificed yourself so that I could 
bear your righteousness so that I could be cleansed, washed clean, be included in your family, and ultimately included in heaven one day. It starts with humility. Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Hey, listen, he didn't just come as a baby so that we could celebrate Christmas. We get the cart before the horse sometimes. He came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And it's him that you and I need. Not just a good memory of him, but we need to know him. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted and received him as your Lord today? If you haven't, you need to do that today. And if you're a child of God, let me ask you, and I know some of you can't do this because you can't get back up. I get it. I've been there a few times. <laughs> but how often do we do this? How often do we do this? Not just asking for everything we want, but just to get in his presence, to get in his presence. See, the greatest blessing of having Christ in our life is not that we go to get, but that we get to go. Do you view it as a privilege to get to go into his presence? Humbling ourselves, offering the very best we have, and allowing that to transform and change our lives every day. What will you do with Jesus today? Maybe you haven't been worshiping the way you should, and only the Lord knows this. But if he makes you aware of that, will you change that today? And will you make a decision to do that and then outline steps that will change that? Don't just say, oh, I'm going to change. No, what does change mean? Outline it. Put it on a piece of paper. This means I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. That's the only way change will come. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. We pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in our lives. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful choice that the wise men made to worship you. Lord, may we make that same choice. May we, too, give our very best to you. May we enter into your presence consistently, constantly. May we recognize that this, the privilege to go into your presence is the real blessing, not to get, but to go. Father, please work in our lives today. Holy Spirit of God, do your work. We'll thank you and praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed.